0: Welcome to another episode of the Hat Collecting Talk Show, the show where we talk about the many different metaphorical hats that people wear in their lives, because no one does just one thing, and everyone has a story. And here on this show, you get to hear those stories. I am your host, Lacey Artemis, a creative Jill of many hats, and I am joined today by Poe Karim, who is an event and creative producer, a product designer, a musician, a writer, and more. Poe's pronouns are he and him. Welcome to the show, Poe.
1: Thank you very much for having me, Lacey.
0: No problem. Um, yeah. And uh, we, we are back. I, I had a bit of a, a hiatus with the show, but I'm excited and happy to, to be back with, with you guys, with, with my audience. So, um, And actually, I'm just going to roll into it. I'll talk about that thing later. <laughs> um, so yeah, the question that we kind of get started off with here is a nice little icebreaker. I like to ask my guests, where did you grow up?
1: Uh so I grew up in a small town called Thorold, Ontario. And that's where I like to say I did most of my growing up. And uh Thorold is between Niagara Falls and St. Catharines. But I guess the whole story is uh I was born in Bangladesh. Um uh where my parents are, are from and where obviously I'm from. Uh they emigrated when I was uh, about 10 months old, so just like a wee baby. Um we emigrated first to Michigan where my father finished his degree. Uh, and then we came to Canada. We were in Brampton for a short while. We were then in St. Catharines for a short while. Uh, and then we were in Thorold for the most of my childhood, uh, from the ages of about six until I went off to university. So I think of Thorold is my hometown. Um, but you know, uh, when I was young, we did move around quite a bit.
0: Hmm. And, uh, it's a bit of a, kind of a sub question there. Um, for for guests who are who who didn't grow up here in Toronto um, or like kind of one of the direct uh, surrounding suburbs, um, I've been asking kind of and so you're kind of a bit of a more small town experience growing up. Do you think that that has and had any kind of lasting influence on you to this point?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of people from small towns will uh, will attest to this as well. But uh, small town, you know, um, there's a lot of Um, conversation about what the nature of Canada is uh, as a country and as a nation. And it's uh, interesting to me how a lot of those viewpoints can be heavily biased depending on whether or not the holder of those viewpoints are from one of the major cities of which there are like five or uh, and how the small town uh, sort of realities or viewpoints completely get erased because you know the uh, the center of media, the center of uh, most culture in Canada uh, are all based in either Toronto, Montreal, or Vancouver. Every now and then, you might get something out of Edmonton or Calgary. And then there's the East Coast, which is just an amalgam of of people. I think it just they just assume everyone in the East Coast wears kilts and bagpipes and has kitchen parties. So um, and they, I think the East Coast sort of stands in for. Um, for it's like the small town of Canada is like the East coast. Right. Uh, But um, definitely small town Ontario is its own unique um, lifestyle. Uh, Depends on which small town you're from. And just to generalize uh, over and over again, it's like, if you, uh, sorry, to overgeneralize, it's like small town Ontario is a different place. Like um, people are definitely, you know, they're, they're more friendly, but they're more racist. So there's a, you know, two sides of a coin there. Uh, but they're not like outwardly racist. They just kind of hold racist viewpoints and it's like, kind of like no fault of their own. they just maybe have not have been, have not been exposed to, um, more progressive views, or it's not the, I guess the prevailing attitude, but it's not to say the small town people are racist, but there's more racism uh, or overt racism, uh, in a small town, or you're more likely to catch somebody saying something that's inappropriate or ignorant. Um, whereas in a big city, that racism is definitely more cloaked and it's more systemic, uh, where people aren't necessarily, um, they consider themselves more educated or too educated to be racist, but they, they still uh, benefit from racist systems and don't really vote in order to erase those racist systems. So, um, yeah, I think small-town Ontario is more up front.
0: Very cool. Thank you for that answer. Um, and so speaking of kind of different places, um, this is the perfect time that we take the moment to uh, do a land acknowledgement. Um, Toronto, or Tkaronto, is located on the traditional unceded territory of the, new, of the Mississaugas of the New Credit First Nations, the Huron-Wendat, the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, and the Anishinaabe. This is a dish with one spoon treaty territory, and we are uninvited visitors on this land. To learn more about that, you can visit native-land.ca, which covers the entire world and not just Canada, despite being a .ca website. Um, so, I do encourage people to go and check that out. If you're not from Toronto or wherever you are, really go and take a look there and see what you can learn. Um, and yeah, I, I didn't. Know. Is there anything you you would like to kind of say about that, or? <laughs>
1: You know, honestly, as a uh, as an immigrant to Canada, I can say that uh, I cherish and value uh, the country that uh, I was brought up in, and everything that it's afforded my family in terms of privileges. But you know, and with deep uh, gratitude and indebtedness to the Indigenous peoples that were here before any of us, without reservation, we owe them everything for the land that we're on.
0: Yes, well said. Um, and so, with that said, um, we're going to get into the show proper now. And so this is kind of where we—I uh, I said in the intro a few of the things that you do or that you're known for. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about how you got into those things that you do?
1: Sure. So uh, I think uh, you know uh, the primary aspect of my identity, or in terms of the the, the hats that I wear, uh, is uh, a, as a musician or a, a maker of music, and it really started from a young age. So, uh, music was a big part of my, is a big part of my life. Uh, I also studied music in university. I went to, um, school for, uh, jazz performance on the drum set. Uh, so I did my, uh, my degree in fine arts with a focus on jazz performance. Um, and yeah, otherwise, uh, that I think that's that forms the core of like the root of, of a lot of my passions is the is music, but you know, essentially creative arts and making uh, something that's compelling and um, that touches people on an emotional level. Um, and then uh, I am uh, now my profession is uh, 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 I guess a producer in experiential marketing, which is a nebulous term at best, but it basically means that uh, I make things happen. So if there's a creative concept, uh, that's been thought of by a creative team, usually agencies have creative teams, they're trying to solve a business problem for a client and they're trying to, um, determine the best way or the best experience that will elicit a response from the audience in order to drive the business results of the client. Uh, I'm the one who brings it to life in the field and, um, that, uh, necessitates a lot of, uh, problem solving ability and, uh, just a lot of foundational on the ground knowledge of what is and isn't possible and knowing full well, you have to come at it with the perspective that everything is possible as long as you have the correct budget and the correct timelines. And if you have enough time and you have enough money, I can basically make anything happen. And I've definitely made a lot of things happen without enough money and definitely without enough time. Um, but that's basically my job is to take something that's a plan and to make it a reality. And uh, as of late, um, I've actually been uh, fortunate enough to uh, be more focused on the ideation process. So not just on the executional side, but actually be in the room to come up with the ideas uh, um, that, uh, that help address these business issues for clients. But it's, uh, it's great because that's, that's sort of the creative part of my brain that I really love uh, where I'm able to. Uh, just throw out far fetched ideas and um, and really just imagine uh, uh, possibilities, scenarios, regardless of whether or not they're uh, you know feasible or, or unfeasible. It's just the the pure imagination aspect, which is something I'd always wished would be a part of my uh, my professional career, and it's getting to the point where that is more and more the case. So that's really great
0: the sort of sub question to this part, uh, cause I said a lot of that was, uh, was linked together. Um, I like to ask about like the biggest misconception are there any common misconceptions about what you do and like how, how can you maybe uh, address those or dispel them
1: <laughs> yeah honestly there. uh it's less about misconceptions and more about like people just having a conception about what i do like me trying to explain what i do to my parents for instance is just a fool's errand and uh i just have given up they're like i'm just like, assure them that i'm gainfully employed and that it's stable income and they're okay with it and they don't really if you ask them what i do they wouldn't be able to tell you Um, and honestly, day to day, if you ask me what I do in a nutshell, it's really hard to explain it as well. But, uh, the root of it or the nuts and bolts is that I work in advertising, uh, and in that field, specifically, uh, marketing, which is more about, uh, communicating to consumers or to an audience directly. I hate to, I hate the word consumers and I hate reducing people to being, consumers, but it is an industry term in terms of people that are you're trying to reach. But, um, sorry, where was it going with this? So communicating specifically to people, uh, and experiential marketing is the, uh, field of the business where instead of them just passively accepting a message, let's say, uh, it appears on TV or it's like, a you know, it's on a billboard or, you know, they, they read it's on a newspaper or a magazine. Um, it, Is uh, It's a form of advertising that uh, creates an active or requires an active response from the person or from the audience. So um, the most basic part of this is where you would get a sample of something. So if you're ever in a Costco and people are giving out samples of food, for instance, that's what they would call experiential marketing because the consumer or the, the audience is... Uh, uh, actually has to experience the product. They have to take it into their mouth, they have to taste it and chew it. And they, they actually get to experience what the product is like. It's the, basically the trade-off is that um, you, you reach less people your your ability to reach people is limited by the number of samples or product that you have or the number of people that are actually in your physical space but the experience everybody's getting is far more valuable so if you reach people with an experience then uh their connection to your message and what you're communicating is far more it's far stronger
0: mm-hmm. well thank you for for all that information it's quite a it's it's kind of a new world like i mean i I had obviously, you know, I've been to stores where they have the samples or I've been to events where they might have like a pop-up something or other. And, and so it's kind of interesting to hear about more of the things that are connected to that and kind of the why. So thank you. I hope that uh, some of my audience uh, just learned something along with me. <laughs> um, so, yeah, the next question here, um, we kind of take it uh, all the way back. And I like to ask... When you were a child, do you remember what you wanted to be or to do when you grew up?
1: Uh, Yeah, and I remember it being very unfocused. But um, I can remember, like, the earliest thing I really wanted to be was a stand-up comedian. And uh, that really, the look of shock and horror on my dad's face when I would mention this was uh, unparalleled. I wish I could have taken a photo because he was not into it. But... um, I, like, I was really into comedy and really admired standup comedians when I was like a young child. And so I, I kind of wanted to uh, to do that. But I was also really into like science and technology. So I remember for a while there, I was like, I really wanted to be a laser technologist, having no idea what those words meant, other than I really liked lasers. And I thought technology was cool. I didn't know what technology was. So uh, there was that part of it. And then uh, by the time I was like, 12 I think I just wanted to be a rock star and uh, those are like the three main things that I wanted to be growing up
0: so you you had your your hat trick nice and early on there yes Um, exactly so this is something I need to I need to normalize this term more because I I, it's a great little great little term hat trick is a term from hockey for anyone who doesn't know it's what they call it when a player scores three goals in the same game and so I kind of like it, the hat trick idea, because it usually on this show, a lot of times we I, I end up pairing the guests kind of uh, hats in, in threes. Um, so I got to start saying that more so people get familiar with the term. So you had your hat trick nice and early. <laughs>
1: yeah. And things definitely evolved, though, you know, as as I got older, like I remember even going to university. Uh, I was still very unsure about what I wanted to do. Uh, there was obviously I wanted to study music, but at one point I was like, should I go into radio broadcasting? It was, uh, something that I kind of hobbied with when I was, uh, when I was younger, I actually had a radio show at Brock university when I was 16 until I was 18. Um, and it was a weekly program. I was really proud of it. And I wanted to perhaps make that a career. And then getting into creative writing as well was also something that I was, uh, Uh, Sort of exploring, but I ended up getting to school for music and I just stuck with that for for the whatever the time that I was in school.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, So speaking of school um, in sort of an indirect way. uh, So this show partly hinges around this idea, this cultural uh, kind of narrative that. By the time we turn 30, we're supposed to have our lives pretty much figured out and be kind of on the path that we're going to be on until we retire. But um, increasingly so, this is not the case for, for a lot of people. And so I I kind of used to ask, like, where were you at at the age of 30? But now I'm finding it more interesting to ask, um, wh- at what age were you when you found like if you're, if you're currently on a path that you're happy with and you plan to continue with for a while, um, what age were you at when you kind of first got onto that path?
1: I would say it was really at age 29. So just under the 30 mark. But um, that's when I had my first uh, sort of, I dipped my toes in the world of experiential marketing, uh, where I was a brand ambassador for, um, for a North America wide tour. And that was the first sort of job that I had that brought out the uh the same sort of passion and drew upon and the innate skills that i had developed as a musician and a performer um and it just seemed to really uh speak to all my strengths and when i discovered this field or this industry um and i I took to it like a fish in water and i was like okay this is kind of like the industry that could that i could pursue like obviously um a rock stardom didn't quite work out for me um and it's precarious at best. Uh, so, uh, being a professional musician, uh, whether or not you're a star or not a star, being a musician is, um, it's something that takes a lot of dedication. And it's very, um, uh, uh, uncertain, right. It's not, it's not very predictable. So, uh, discovering the, uh, the world of experiential marketing, I, um, it, it spoke to all my strengths. It really brought up the best in me. And it was a viable career option where there was, you know companies I could work for and get full time jobs with benefits and build a career, and that was really what. Uh, and I discovered that on the, in the summer of that of of twenty nine of age twenty nine. Uh, so uh, that's where it kind of it hit home that this would be my career path.
0: All right, and so the sub question to this one is: uh, Is there any particular obstacle or hurdle that was? Um, like, or what was the biggest obstacle to kind of you getting to that path sooner, perhaps?
1: Uh, a lot. Well, it was this other passion of mine, uh, this dream of being a p- professional musician and, uh, really sort of knowing when to quote unquote, hang up the skates, right? It's like, if you're a hockey player and you don't make it to the NHL, there's one point where you have to say, I need to stop skating every day. And it's not that you need to stop skating every day, but like, I needed a job. You know, and I was uh, through my 20s, I was dedicated to learning how to play the drums as best as I possibly could. And I got pretty far Uh, as a journey of self-discovery and of self-knowledge and of discovering an art and exploring an art. I crushed it in my 20s. I was an extremely, extremely good drummer. I could say that at age 27, 28, I was the best drummer that I could be. And if I had the means, then, yes, I would have kept uh, doing that where I was practicing eight to 10 hours a day. Um, I was working part-time as a server and I was making enough to sort of, you know, make my rent and, uh, and feed myself and, and, uh, and basically support my drumming habit, which was great, but, you know, coming up, uh, but I was unceremoniously fired from my serving job at age 27. And that's where I realized like, am I going to be doing this forever where I am just serving and I'm just learning how to play the drums? And will that be the life that I want in ten years? And I think uh, in my twenties I was not very future minded. I was not, you know, I was not thinking about where I would be in in five years, where I would be in ten years, or not realizing that what I do now is going to affect what I can do in five or ten years. And that is the that's the shift in the mindset that I really had to accept and embody.
0: I can I can definitely, uh, and you even said I I liked that you mentioned how um like the things that you're sort of pursuing or the things that you're doing affect like what you can do down the road and like that's something that i am i've been sort of in this perpetual state for a few years now of like i don't necessarily know exactly what i want to be doing in five or ten years i just kind of know some things i enjoy doing and like it's sort of always been a it started a few years ago to be like okay I'm going to work on x y or z for the next kind of 6 to 12 months and I'm going to see where I am in a year from now and kind of reassess and it kind of is now more like like every month I'm kind of working at stuff and then kind of like okay do I still want to be going on this or do I want to turn slightly or do I want to go completely you know off to the side and um things are just kind of like yeah so so I I've been thinking a lot about that of like I, I, it's hard for me to have like a longer term goal just for a variety of reasons. but um, when I do look at what I'm doing and kind of what seems to make sense or what seems viable as a thing to kind of keep doing, um yeah it's 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 a lot to think about and you know it's part of part of why I, I like doing the show as well because I kind of get to learn from others and maybe get some ideas or some like something that a guest might say might spur an idea for me or might spur an idea for one of the audience and I think that's just kind of a little a little bonus of it um but with that all said um the next question here um so this one we're kind of uh, this is kind of the, the middle section of the show here. Um, what, uh, what is, so sorry, there's a preface for this and I almost forgot it because I'm a little rusty at this. Um, so there's this idea with, uh, with self-care uh, that I think is is getting uh, more and more kind of normalized, but there's a, the original idea is like that self-care is like really, really pampering yourself, like going to a spa or having a really fancy dinner or something like that, or buying like a really expensive thing for yourself. Um, but self-care can be very simple, small acts. And I know through this pandemic, I think a lot of us have had to find more of those like little ways to kind of uh, do self-care. Um, but so what's, what is, uh, one of the last things that you did for self-care, no matter how small it was?
1: Uh, this is the easiest question to answer is I cuddle with my dog and I know that there's some video, uh, watchers here. So there she is right there. That's Dolly. And, um, ever since the pandemic started, I've been fortunate enough to be able to work from home and working from home is fantastic. I love it the most. And I don't know why we ever commuted anywhere at any time i don't understand it it was the big lie that everyone bought into for generations upon generations uh but ever since the internet it's like it's just a lie that we've all uh accepted as a truth and um the pandemic has kind of shifted that and if we didn't spend billions upon billions oh we talked about this before if we didn't spend billions on uh on roadways we could have spent billions on uh on uh internet infrastructure and it would have saved everybody so much headache anyway I love working from home. And one of the things I do every day now that I work from home is at lunchtime, I take an hour and I, we, um, myself and my partner, we eat lunch together and we just sit on the couch and we cuddle with the dog. And that's my middle of day. That's my midday break, you know? And, um, and then I do the exact same thing as soon as I'm done work around five, five 30, six o'clock at night, whatever. And I go and eat dinner with them and we sit on the couch and we cuddle and our life is literally just cuddling each other and it's the best and uh it happens every day and i'm the luckiest person in the world to be able to uh to have that so that's my self-care
0: well congratulations that does sound lovely um, so the next question here, because uh, the show is is largely about learning as well, and the different things that we learn through our, our journeys. Um, so i like to ask my guests, what is the last new thing that you learned, whether it was a skill or a piece of information, and what is something you would still like to learn?
1: Um, well, I think, uh, I think the last thing I like learned in earnest, I learned how to knit. So I've recently taken up knitting or at least four years ago, I got my first set of knitting needles. And then this past winter, I've actually committed to using them in, a, in an effective way. So right now I can only really do scarves, but, uh, they turned out really well. And I've made a number of scarves for a number of, uh, friends and family. Um, Uh, in terms of what I want to learn, uh, I, the sky's the limit. Like I, I want, I want to learn anything I can, but, uh, honestly, the thing that I have my sights set on is, uh, because, um, we just purchased a a property, uh, that we'll be moving into later this summer. And, um, it has quite a large, uh, backyard and front yard. Uh, and I want, I want to do topiary. I want to shape plants and hedges into weird and history shapes, but I just want to make topiary like, uh, start off with like simple shapes, like geometric shapes and whatever. And then, you know, just really get nuts with it. Let's see how crazy I can get with like my garden and my hedges and things of that sort. So uh, I guess gardening is my next big, uh, project to, uh, to tackle. And I'm definitely at that age where I'm excited about gardening. So
0: yeah i think gardening is something that uh that a few people got a little bit more into with the pandemic um just again yeah, being kind of stuck home more and even some of my friends who have apartments with a balcony and some of them have just started to um you know raise a few plants or some you know tomato plants or something on their balcony and uh you know that's one of the i guess positive things that's come out of all of this um yeah so the next question here um What uh, I like to ask about, again, these kind of metaphorical hats and the like when when we get into these situations where we do have this this variety of things that we do or that we're interested in. um, Inevitably, we might have uh, like two interests or two skills or something that that maybe other people seem very um, like diametrically opposed or unrelated. Um, So I like to ask what would you say are your two most dissimilar hats and hats being skills or interests?
1: Yeah, I, uh, that's a very difficult uh, question to answer mostly because I feel like all my interests are really sort of interconnected. Um, but you know, like I'm like, I'm really into knitting and I'm really into drumming. Uh, the common thread is that uh, literally the thread, I guess, but the, the common, commonality there is that it's, it's using sticks, right? It sticks with your hands. And, and so uh, the idea of manipulating tools to create something is really interesting to me. Same thing. I guess that's why I like topiary and gardening. It's like, the ability to just sort of use your hands to then channel, you know, energy or creativity out into the world, uh, through a medium with drums, it's, you know, music or, uh, knitting it's with, uh, with thread or with yarn. And then with gardening, it's literally like the earth and plants and, and such. So, um, they might seem disparate, but I think they have a very, like the, the root there, the commonality is very, uh, very fundamental, which is just the use of my hands to, to affect the world around me. Um, I'm trying to think of, uh, like otherwise like I'm really into like space and astronomy and and cosmology and like like the sort of like a quantum particle physics sort of universe but I'm also into like uh like movie craft uh, I, like I really nerd out on like film blogs and uh and like the making of things but that all ties into my um my interest in production, right? It's all about how do you create an environment or a space or an experience and, you know, how they do that in film or how they do that uh, in staging a large concert uh, or how you do it with just sort of like architecture or, or interior design. Um, those are all, they're, they're still connected and they seem very disparate and they seem like sort of scattered, but I think it comes from me in general, just being a big picture thinker. And being able to see the connections within things that seem uh, at on the surface dissimilar, or or uh, or opposed, or are not really related, I'm I'm usually looking for those connections in general.
0: Yeah, that's, uh, that's I mean, I can definitely relate to a lot of what you just said, and um, and I also part of the the reason behind this question yeah. is that it comes back to this idea that, like, I've talked to some people who do focus mainly in kind of one area. But through doing this show and asking these questions, I often find that, you know, you might think like, oh, a doctor, I haven't actually interviewed a doctor yet, but uh, like a doctor, you think they they obviously they they work a lot and they they don't have a lot of free time for kind of hobbies and things. But then if you talk to a doctor, you might find out that they like to play ping pong or something be like, that's not something I might expect a doctor to do, but this is, you know, maybe here's a doctor that does it. And so I just, I find that interesting. Of It's almost like, what are the, the hidden things behind again, that facade of like when people look at you or they hear your job title or your kind of main interest. And then like, what's a surprising thing that's also part of that uh, that's just not readily kind of visible? And that's sort of what I, what I guess I'm getting at with, with that question a little bit. Um, this next question here is a bit of a, a similar kind of thing because in when we're going through like elementary school and high school, there's obviously all these like compulsory classes like you have to study math, science, English, geography, uh, stuff like that. And it's sort of this idea that like these are all crucial like life skills, things that we'll need to like work and to get along in life. But a lot of times we don't actually end up using uh, much of some of those, depending on what we end up doing. So I I think it's interesting that once we get out into the workforce, uh, or even just even for like more of a freelancer, independent, or whatever, but we always end up picking up some kind of skill or like knowledge set that we can apply in perhaps unexpected ways or in in like unique ways. And so I like to ask, uh, can you think of an example of a time that you applied a skill or like a specific kind of knowledge in a way that like, it wasn't really related to or or meant for?
1: So this is like a really, really tough question. It's really hard to sort of imagine a specific uh, instance, but uh, I am the kind of person that's very good at uh, sort of uh, jury rigging something um, uh, or Jerry rigging something. I don't know what the actual term is. I don't think it's jury. I don't know, but like just sort of hobbling together a solution from disparate parts. And um, I think an example of this would be uh, we uh, we previously had a dog um, named Charlotte who uh, suffered from epilepsy and in treating her epilepsy, we had to administer medication, Uh, a number of different medications on a number of different schedules. So there's a medication that she's on is every 24 hours. Another one that's every 12 hours. Another one that's every eight hours and um, managing her medication schedule was difficult, especially when I worked and also uh, my wife and my partner worked. And um, one way that I sort of uh, was able to solve this was I got an automatic pet feeder and I put her dose Uh, in each, and it's like, basically it's a rotating cup system, kind of like a, like a, like a five disc CD changer where just like one, uh, one sort of cup is exposed at any given time and it rotates on a schedule. So, uh, I would fill the cups, the appropriate cups based on the timer, uh, with her pills and like with treats or something to, to mash it all up into something that she wanted to eat. And, uh, and so I set the timer at the appropriate times, but then we also had to make sure that she took it. So I found an old cell phone that we had and uh, it wasn't hooked up to anything, but it still had Wi-Fi. So I was able to use the camera and hook it up to like a webcam uh, app, like a cloud-based webcam app. And I put it uh, and I aimed it at the pet feeder that had her medication. And then the other thing is that uh, this dog was extremely sleepy all the time. Uh, So she wouldn't just naturally wake up if the pet feeder uh, exposed food for her. So I also had to set an alarm on the cell phone and had it on a full blast. And then one of the favorite things that people in my office love doing is when it was time for Charlotte to take her meds, they all crowd around my computer and wait for the feed to show up. And then the alarm would go off. And then the happiest thing or like the most satisfying thing is to see Charlotte like jump into frame and eat her medication. And I'm just like, yes, you know, one more day where she's like, she got her meds on time and she did that. And It's sort of like this overarching skill that I have of just sort of making something work with what I have, like taking advantage of what is available to me and uh, sort of creating something that will get the job done. And that's, you know, it serves me well um, since a lot of my my work is in field. And as much as we try to plan for every contingency that might arise, you're always surprised by something. And you have to make do with what you got because you don't have the time to go back to the drawing board and and replan something. So um, I think that like to ask, like, what is an example of a time that I've applied a skill? I think I'm always doing that where I'm just like taking something and making it work without having the proper tools. And I think that's probably my 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 best skill of my resourcefulness that comes through.
0: You just reminded me of something that I've heard before that that sounds very in line with uh, that story you just told. And it's this idea that that like a lot of the like innovation and like efficiencies that turn up in people's jobs usually are a result of either the employee being like, this particular task is too hard or too like time intensive and i don't want it to be so they like instead of them going out of their way to be like how can i be as efficient at my job as possible for my boss's sake and you know the company's profit's sake it's like no i'm i'm tired or i'm frustrated by this i want to make my life easier so what can i do to accomplish that and so a lot of apparently like i've heard stories of you know especially programmers seem to be quite adept at this at like um creating like bots or creating scripts or routines that just like do things for them. So and like so I was just thinking as you were telling that story, like, oh, I would have just tried to, you know, do the the schedule thing, but then like your your idea, your solution is pretty ingenious and it takes a lot of load, like it maybe is a lot to set up, but then it takes a lot of load off of you. And that's really cool. And I, I think that uh you know like that's kind of the thing. Like um necessity kind of does tend to breed like innovation and kind of new ideas like that so thank you for sharing that uh, that story
1: <laughs> my pleasure thank you
0: um yeah so the next thing that we're gonna get into we're gonna get a little bit more serious for a little bit here um so this next question has to do with close relationships because obviously close relationships can certainly have an impact on our, our life and our trajectory and how quickly or slowly we might uh, accomplish things or figure things out or get places. Uh, so I like to ask and I again, I'm using the sort of hat type metaphors and so I've got these concepts of a hype hat and a heavy hat and so a hype hat is a person who like hypes you up and encourages you and always tries to like kind of make you a better person and kind of help you shine. And heavy hats are more the opposite. Or they're people that kind of discourage you. And kind of slow you down. And kind of take away from your your confidence. Or or your, make you doubt yourself. And uh, you don't have to name specific people. Because uh, sometimes that can be hard. But just uh, in general. If you can think of kind of an example of each. Uh, that you have kind of experienced in your life.
1: Uh, yeah. Like honestly. Uh, my wife is my everlasting high Pat. Uh, and she has been from the moment we met, she's just like incredibly supportive, incredibly validating, and always encouraging me to pursue things. Um, you know, if I ever have a wacky idea, she is the first one to like enthusiastically get up and stand up and applaud me for it. And I often have wacky, wacky ideas. It's just like part and parcel of who I am. So it's just, uh. Uh, it's been fantastic to, um, to have her in my life, uh, just if anything, for that, that reason where, um, if I get a crazy or wacky idea or just like a, and I, uh, something she's like, if it makes me happy, her eyes light up and, uh, she encourages me to, to pursue it and do it. And it's, uh, it's a really fantastic feeling to have that kind of support my corner, uh, that type of validation, uh, in terms of heavy hat, like, I'm not scared to say that, uh, honestly, my father, Uh, in in my life has been that Uh, and uh, the older I get the more I try to empathize uh, and realize that he's doing it from a place of fear because you know uh, a lot of um, you know he went through a lot of hardship in order to get us here. Uh, you know, like uh, Bangladesh went through a, like a liberation war, uh, which tore the country apart in the 70s, which led to uh, – which was the motivation for a lot of migration of Bengali people into North America in the late 70s and the early 80s, which my parents were a part of that. And uh, so a life based on that kind of trauma and insecurity. And wanting to make sure, you know, they struggled and they sacrificed a lot in order to bring uh, this generation up, my generation up, uh, with the privileges that we have and the opportunities that we have. And it's very concerning if we start pursuing things like creative fields or don't pursue, uh, uh, you know, professional um, designations like doctor, lawyer, engineer, things of that sort, Uh, because um, it's they they just see it as a as a vehicle for stability and security and a life of comfort. And they came from a life that was very uncomfortable. Uh, So um, there's like, I can understand where that comes from. But uh, also, it it doesn't negate the fact that uh, he often is the person to call into question what the intentions are, or what uh, what my motivations are. And eventually just comes down to second guessing me to not quite give me the credit of a person who, you know, like has a head on their shoulders and uh, can make sound decisions, even if they're even if they seem completely irrational or if they seem, um, uh, you know, crazy or out of the ordinary, that's just me. Like I'm not an ordinary person. And, um, so there's a lot of like, sort of trying to discredit or, uh, make me second guess the decisions that I'm making, uh, which is a habit that I'm trying to snap them out of. But, um, you know, I empathize where it comes from, but it still doesn't make it okay. Like I'm not here to, to, just to, to stand for that or anything so uh that's the type of that that's the type of struggle we have in our relationship
0: yeah i can i can somewhat relate to that uh, my my sort of parents have been kind of one of them was a hype hat one of them was more of a heavy hat um so thank you for for sharing that and again that the i've said this on previous episodes but just for anyone who might be new listening um that question is kind of designed to to illustrate two things uh like what a kind of healthy supportive person in your life looks like so that you can hopefully identify them and have more of them around and obviously then to also identify what an unhealthy unsupportive person is look kind of looks or sounds or feels like and then you know try to set boundaries with them or perhaps get them completely out of your life or just Generally, being able to uh, to understand and recognize those kind of two things can make a huge difference in your life because some people, unfortunately, do have like they're surrounded by hype hats perhaps, and other people are surrounded by uh, heavy hats, and you know those two can go very very differently. Um, so, kind of moving forward from that, uh, this next question. Um, the pandemic has obviously, uh, I think, affected most people's mental health in some way. I think we've all kind of taken at least a step back. Um, but in and uh, whatever you're comfortable talking about, not just within the pandemic, but just in your life in general, um, whatever you're comfortable talking about, are there any um, mental health issues or struggles that you have uh, dealt with? And how have you worked through them?
1: Uh, sure. Um, and honestly, like, I first want to acknowledge that I feel extremely lucky and privileged to have experienced the pandemic in the way that I have, where I was able to keep my job um, and uh, I had a very stable sort of uh, career. And uh, at the early part of the pandemic, it wasn't very, uh, it wasn't immediately stable, but it ended up stabilizing itself. But um, in terms of how it affected me, like definitely there was uh, the, you feel loss, uh, uh feeling uh, and feel the loss of the previous life or the life that we used to have uh and i definitely miss my friends and i miss making music and um making music with my band is really the thing that i miss the most out of my pre-pandemic pre-pandemic life and that and hugging somebody other than my wife and i would love to get that sort of touch and physical affection back but the i did notice this past winter like uh the first sort of like between november and february that um I started feeling like seasonal affective disorder very, very heavily. And I was not ever a a fan of winter. Like I already know that I am, I have a body built for the tropics. Like I am made for sun and heat. Uh, And so every winter I'm a little bit sad and like, just like not into it and and not having a good time. But um, this winter, I remember it was like getting out of bed was difficult. Like it was really difficult. And I would have some intrusive thoughts about, Uh, like, why do I even bother? Like, why would I like, what's the point of me waking up today and, and and doing these things and going about my, my daily business? Like, uh, I did feel that I think for the first time on like a regular basis, like feeling intrusive thoughts come in and, um, it's amazing how, how quickly that lifted once the time change happened, you know, like we sprung forward and all of a sudden like there's more light in the day and it reduced itself a great deal. And, uh, that was a pretty dramatic shift. And I'm like, wow, that is like, uh, that is like a real, like if I were to, I probably should have talked to somebody about it. Like I probably should have sought some help, uh, during the, the winter months when it was at its worst, because it was something, I don't know if it really affected. Um, it probably did, but like, you know, I wasn't consciously letting it affect, uh, other aspects of my life or my relationships, but I do remember uh, feeling um, very sort of nihilistic about things uh, at that time, and uh, I would say like, yeah, that was very noticeable for me I, uh,
0: I I'm not built for the tropics, but otherwise, I completely agree with you winter is is my least favorite season by far, and I always struggle in winter, and this winter was definitely harder than mm-hmm. usual um and yeah i unfortunately uh ended up uh, having a breakup right at the end of winter so um that is i'll just i'll just admit it that is a big part of why this show ended up being on a two-month hiatus right um but i'm i'm glad i'm i'm doing a lot better now and i'm kind of getting back to things so um yeah so the next question here um Failure, uh, the preface is failure can be a good thing, obviously, if you can learn from failures or learn from things not going quite the way that you wanted. Uh, and so I like to ask my guests, what is a, uh, an example of a time that uh, that you failed at something or something didn't go the way that you hoped it would, but you learned a valuable lesson from that experience? And what was it?
1: Well, uh, yeah, I'm trying to think. Uh, and I feel like, like I fail all the time. So, uh, I feel like it's a regular basis thing. So it's not, it's hard to pinpoint, but there are a couple of instances. So I have been fired from two jobs. Um, I was unceremoniously fired from one of my serving jobs, which really pulled the rug out from under me. And that was when I was like, kind of like, a, I used to call it my drumming monk phase where I was like practicing eight to 10 hours a day. I was getting good at my craft and I was really ramping up to becoming a professional drummer. Uh, but I needed my serving job to pay the bills. And, uh, when that was taken away from me or when I, when I got fired, it was because I, I made, um, a very, I, I thought it was an innocent joke about a menu item, uh, about it not being very good. And the table that I was serving at the time, I didn't realize that they were actually senior managers from our head office and they didn't think my joke was very funny. They laughed at the time, but two days later they sent a, um, an email to our store manager and said that you got to fire this kid. So there was that. And it's funny because what's the lesson, the lesson that I learned from that is a lesson that I quickly forgot, which is keep your mouth shut, Poe. Cause I have, uh, what do I have? I have strong opinions and I have an articulate, uh, vocabulary and, That combination can be very dangerous, uh, especially if I'm uh, feeling loose and unabashed and I'm expressing my opinions like uh, out in the world and just yelling them or throwing them at people unsolicited. So it did caution me and uh, make me realize that I need to temper um, the way that I express myself in certain situations, uh, because it's not always to my benefit to just assume this like and uh, part of it is arrogance right it's just like assuming a tone of arrogance where like i can just because i'm framing it in a humorous way um i have a way of like uh of asserting myself a little too strongly and that can um put people off and to my detriment not just like maybe hurt people's feelings or make them uh feel uh like they don't like the take up space that they need to take up, but also in a in a in a way that can actually come back and really really negatively affect me. So that was a that was a hard lesson that I would take. It was a lesson in humility. And so I'm happy that it happened. Um, and there was uh, the other time that I got fired. Uh, well, actually, it was, it was it was really it was a layoff, and uh, this happens in uh, advertising agencies on uh, on a fairly regular basis, where an agency will sort of just like mass cull. Their staff. Right. And uh, it's a way of sort of shaking things up or uh, just sort of um, creating it's kind of like a literally like armies used to like the word, the term decimation uh, came from an old army tactic where they would cut off the head of every 10th person in a row. And it was a way of uh, shaking up the infantry to get them back in line. If they become disorderly or they become uh, sort of unruly, they stop following orders or whatever. It's a way of reorganizing them. It's a very, very brutal tactic, but it works, right? It's shock and awe. And uh, this happens in the professional world and definitely in agencies on a fairly regular basis where uh, they will just like, you know things aren't working. Like maybe the teams aren't working well, or they uh, they uh, they aren't producing like they used to. And uh, they will just lay people off. They're like, we're just going to get rid of. Like uh, in my instance, it was five people will let go in one day. Uh, sometimes it's ten or whatever, and they'll just like they'll just let people go, and it it just creates. Uh, it's kind of like a like a forest fire burn or a controlled burn where it just creates room for people to uh, then reorganize and grow and whatever. But I was uh, I was involved in one of those. Um, but it wasn't necessarily for the worst because I remember when I was laid off from that uh, agency, I actually felt a sense of relief because I was not doing well there. Uh, The agency was a fantastic place to work. It had a lot of perks. It had everything that you think of like working in an ad agency, all the fun things were there, you know, like foosball tables and beer fridges. And there's a lot of dogs that were running around. Um, But at the same time, I just wasn't, uh, I was in a department that I'm going to say was rather toxic. It was run by some really um, uh, brutally awful personalities, people who were not uh, there to nourish or nurture people they weren't team players like uh they were just really they were rude they were insular they were insecure they were they're were toxic toxic people and i was working directly with them and i was not having a great time and uh I, for 2 years i'm like i'm getting paid relatively well and i have all these workplace perks but i am not being my career is not going anywhere i'm not being utilized or developed at all um and it was a really not a great situation for me so the day that i was laid off i was like this is actually better. And I was able to, you know, take that time. I was given a fairly uh, generous severance package. So I actually had a really nice, I was laid off in like the, the end of May, I think it was like the end or middle of May. And I had three months of severance. So I just like full salary for three months without, any real obligation it was actually a pretty fun time for me and i was able to regroup and reorganize and eventually i landed in the position that i am now and i've been in with that company for six years run with much more healthy constructive people with stronger leadership and it it actually makes a huge difference in uh in one's career development so uh those are two instances i think of like what people will consider failures of losing a job or being fired from a from a workplace but um One thing that really got me was uh, after I was fired from my serving job, for instance, and this is when I didn't know if I had any other type of employable skills, um, where I had basically dedicated my life to playing the drums and waiting tables. And uh, I was fired from the serving job and I was really, really down on myself. I felt like I had been kicked in the stomach. And I called my mom and I uh, told her, I'm like, you know, I just got fired. She's like, okay, you probably feel really, really bad right now. I'm like, yes, I do. She's like, but you have to remember that you are, that you were, you, you're in this country, you were brought up in this country, you speak the language and you have been, uh, and you are smart and you're capable. And I'm like, okay. And she's like, so don't worry. You're going to be okay. And, uh, that kind of stuck with me. It's like, even uh, just to remember what my privileges were, you know, at a time where I felt like I didn't have any, she's like, you grew up here, you were educated here, and you speak the language. And she would tell me about, you know, she didn't have that benefit. She grew up in a different country for 30 some odd years of her life. Uh, she was educated there. And when she came over here, she told she told me about how she had to hand write job applications with like an ink and pen. She's like, you have a computer, you have the internet, you have all of this going for you. So just remember, you're going to be okay. It Just like be sad today, but tomorrow, just know that, you know, you have to get back to being okay.
0: Uh, it's it's funny that you mentioned that. I I actually remember myself uh, growing up here in Canada. I remember filling out job applications in in pen and ink uh, when I was when I was sixteen, applying for my first jobs. Um, that, that's kind of I, I hadn't thought about that in a long long time. <laughs> um, but yeah, I just wanted to really briefly uh, tell a quick story uh, of my own from kind of one that, the one that you said about getting fired from bad jobs or jobs that aren't a good fit. And that kind of falls under that sort of sometimes you find out when things don't go the way that you, uh, or, you know, something like that, that you find out that wasn't right for me anyways. And I was in a job about uh, 11, 12 years ago, and I wasn't happy there because when I started, it was one of those things where it was a very small company and it's just, okay, what, what position or what thing do we need the next person that we hire to learn and I started there, and like, okay, we need someone to learn shipping, and so Lacey, you're learning shipping, and the, I that's not what I had applied for, and I had never done it before, and just like, well, that's what I got to learn, that's what I got to do, and then I was stuck there for uh, a year, and then I got cut um, uh, just after Christmas, kind of like you, I think, said about one that uh, was for you know budget reasons, and I was actually like literally as soon as the, the 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 owner told me and I like stepped outside to start walking back to the bus stop I called my mom while I was walking back to the bus stop and it's just like I'm free and like yes I I knew that I didn't I didn't know what was going to be next but that actually ended up being the the start of when I transitioned from like I had been trying to pursue some kind of career in in like music or some kind of creative field then. And it's like, Hey, this just seems way too precarious. I, I need something like that. I can, I can rely on. So that was the opportunity for me to switch tracks. And, and I've been kind of on that other track since. So, um, yeah, that's, uh, that kind of was just, what that reminded me of, and, uh, I like to kind of share those, those stories sometimes when it's it relevant. Uh,
1: yeah. It's uh, something I say that it sometimes it takes huge upheaval to get you out of a rut. You know, when ruts are deep, Uh, sometimes you don't know how you're going to get yourself out, or you don't even know that you're in the rut and then a huge upheaval blast you out of that rut. And then all of a sudden you're on a different path.
0: Yeah, for sure. And that's why I say that sometimes it can be a good thing and you just, you don't know it at the exact, that exact moment. But so, on this show through answering all these different questions, a lot of times advice just naturally kind of comes up uh, through like kind of insights and answers. But I like to kind of round us out with trying to distill that. And so I like to ask the guests to give advice to the listeners. and there's three different groups that we're going to address and you can give either the same advice to all three groups or you can give separate advice to each group. So I like to ask, uh, what advice would you give to a teenager? What advice would you give to a 30 something? And what advice would you give to a grandparent,
1: uh, to a teenager? I would say, uh, stick with French, stay with French and learn your French. Um, because that's that is like my biggest regret in education. Like I studied Bachelor of Fine Arts, and I wish I had stuck with French. That's like the number one thing. Um, and I tell that to anytime we have like a bring your kid to work day or a career day or whatever. Uh, if there's like a twelve year old that comes by my desk, I'm like, stick with French. I, I tell them all the time. Uh, to a thirty year old, uh, what would I say? I would say, imagine the life you want at forty, and plan for that now um and and i would ask them it's like do you want to be where you are at age 40 uh cuz that's the question that i feel that i didn't ask myself soon enough that's the question that i wish i had uh, sort of asked or realized that um you know i was very much a live for the moment type of person uh in the analogy or the the fable of the grasshopper and the ant i was very much a grasshopper um but uh now i'm somebody who uh, like sets goals and, and, uh, and works to achieve them. And uh, it's something that I, if it was a habit that I had formed earlier, I would have had a few more goals achieved under my belt at this time. It's never too late, but it's never too early to adopt a goal oriented mindset. And that doesn't mean that you're a nerd or that you're square or, you know, you don't like, you can't, you don't know how to live in the moment or appreciate, you know, uh, the, the, the frivolity of life or be spontaneous. Like you can do all that, but you can also set goals and, and set a plan to achieve those goals. And that kind of habit is something that even though it's, I think it's something that's been told to me my entire adult life since I was like in university or high school, it's not something that's sunk in until what I feel is a little bit late, but it's not too late. So I would say it's never too early, but it's never too late to adopt a goal oriented mindset. Um, in terms of uh, like the last one, the, the a bit of advice for somebody who's old, am I giving this advice as if I was my age and they are as old as they are? Yeah. Uh, I would say, um, A, shut up and enjoy your golden years. And B, give out your inheritance early. Don't wait till you die. Just give up the money. Uh, That's what I'm going to say for old people.
0: That's, that's fair. And that's, that's, uh, I think those are, those are both uh, first P like I've gotten a lot of like the same kind of answers from a lot of guests, but that was a very unique answer. So Um, Thank you for that. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, this is the part of the show where I flip the script really briefly and I give the guest an opportunity to ask me a question. A lot of guests have asked me about, you know, why I started the show or what I hope to achieve with it. So I've answered that one a bunch of times already. If there's uh, something else that you uh, would like to ask me, now is your opportunity.
1: Uh, What I would ask is, like, what – I don't know how many of these you've done. I assume it's a few dozen but I assume that there are some, like what are the, the overarching common themes that you were learning from speaking to these people that wear all these multiple hats? What What is like a pattern that you find that's emerging from these conversations?
0: It's really interesting because I thought that, like my initial idea was to literally only interview people that I knew were like, you know, had their hands in all these different things. And I've interviewed a few people who I thought were more like specialized and through that I found out like I was saying that like quite literally everybody has other things that they do that you might never guess and I always love finding out about those because it's just this fun little surprise and it's like like I said like wait that's a doctor and he plays ping pong like I never would have guessed that and that's just like huh And like, I've had this mixture of like, I'll get a lot of the same kinds of answers on certain questions, but then other questions get like these really interesting, unique answers a lot. And so what I've actually tried to do with the show as I've refined the question set over time, uh, I've like certain questions, if they get like pretty much the same answer every time, I eventually will cut them because like, hey, that's not adding anything to the show. And I try to like find the questions that will get like some kind of unique insight. Um, but like, literally I learned something from every guest and, uh, like now that I'm, I'm trying to more actively get like more diversity as well. And I'm, I'm really going to try to start getting like, like actual more like grandparents and teenagers on the show because I want to interview them as well. I don't want it to always just be people in the 30 to 40 range, which it mostly has so far. Um, cause that's, again, it's, it's like, the, I'll learn more, the more different, like perspectives and experiences that i that i kind of draw from um does does that answer your question uh, happily
1: (laughs) uh yeah it's getting there now i wish i wasn't so hard on grandparents but uh (laughs) because i do think it would be really interesting to have this conversation with somebody who's uh you know who's aged or uh in that advanced uh stage of life so i think i don't want to discount i think there's a lot of value to 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 our elderly people uh i do think that uh that there's a little too much judgment coming down from the uh from the aged years down to the, you know, we got a lot more to deal with at this age We're dealing with the world that they left us and it's not great right now. You know, we're trying to make the most of it. So, uh, I think the transfer of wealth has to happen a lot faster. And, um, uh, on top of that, I think they, they need to vote better or not vote at all. That's what I'm going to say about that.
0: Yeah, another quick little thing that I'll I'll, I'll sort of say on that for anyone who's listening, um, I have, uh, I put up a a short video recently on YouTube to kind of say like, people are welcome to send in suggestions for people they would like to see on the show, but also um, for teenagers and and grandparents, I actually am going to have like different question sets because some of these questions are not going to be as applicable to a teenager and some of them are not going to be as applicable to an elder. So um, it has the potential to not quite create three shows but like it's you know you are going to definitely be getting like kind of a unique uh uh, answer set from from these different kind of generations and I'm, i'm especially like i've had a few instances now and i'm only in my late 30s and i've been starting to have experiences where like i don't think i'm that out of touch with with youth, but
1: <laughs> you are I'm, so out of touch <laughs>
0: i'm hearing things from even just like you know early 20s people uh and i'm just like that's a thing now and it's like oh so this is what my parents you know felt like when i was growing up you just they, you just don't realize things are changing oh it happens you
1: know? it happens so fast yeah, so, so I guess. when i start
0: to hopefully interview teenagers uh soon then i imagine that's going to be a bit of a culture shock but at least i'll become a little bit more um aware yeah, of kind
1: of You'll the- be a little more literate in the youth culture and what they're all doing yeah
0: yes um so yeah with that said um This is a chance we will take uh, if there's any, I like to give the the guests a chance uh, to, um, like, if there's any uh, charities or causes that you would like to promote or raise awareness of.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I, um, all during COVID-19, I've, uh, I've done a sort of a data tracker. Uh, focused on the Ontario sort of uh, trajectory of the the outbreak. Um, And in that data tracker, uh, at the end of every post, I always call out um, uh, for donations for Dandelion Initiative. Uh, If you're unaware, uh, the Dandelion Initiative is a survivor-run um, uh, not-for-profit that focuses on sexual assault survivors and advocating on their behalf uh, in terms of government and community policy, and uh, uh, specifically on Safer Spaces training. So they deliver Safer Spaces training to bars, venues, uh, and any other organization that feels like they could use that type of training uh, to make sure that they know how to spot the signs of sexual assault um, and create a safer space for anybody who's a potential victim of of sexual assault uh, they do fantastic work uh, it's incredibly valuable and uh, once again they're survivor run uh organization and it's all trauma cent- trauma-informed and survivor-centric so uh they're a fantastic uh organization and then the other one is for maggie's toronto which is uh the sex workers uh project they advocate for um safe uh uh sex worker safety uh, and sex worker in, uh, industry, uh, safety. So they don't, uh, they don't, what they do is they support sex workers without judgment. And it doesn't matter if it's legal or illegal or whatever you feel about that. Sex workers deserve, uh, support. They deserve respect and they deserve, uh, legitimacy, uh, in society. They are doing, uh, legitimate work sex workers work and maggie's does fantastic work on behalf of sex workers in canada so those are the two charities that i would encourage everyone to find out more about and donate if they have the means
0: thank you so much for sharing that and i just want to take a quick second uh, at the end of the the video if you're watching on youtube i do have like a, a kind of a title card screen at the end that um does list uh, a lot of the common charities that the show um, does support or have been brought by by past guests and i will you know add that to to the list on the on the website at collecting.com also has that at the bottom of the page um, each episode i do like we often get a, a new unique uh, suggestion or two or three from, from the guests so i love that I'm, you know growing growing this list uh, over time and um, yeah there are so many good causes out there um, that that could use attention, and of course, I also want to take a quick second to say there's a, there's a dedicated button on the screen on YouTube, uh, Black Lives Matter. And uh, also support, uh, as we kind of talked briefly about earlier, you know, indigenous rights. And um, that's another thing that that definitely a lot of education and, uh, and activism needs to happen with. So um, those are kind of from, from this side of things. And so now we will kind of uh, start wrapping up here. Um, that's the plug section. So... Uh, Anything now that, uh, whether it's like uh, social media accounts or websites or projects, anything kind of online or in the world that you do or are are involved with that you want people to know about?
1: Uh, Sure. So uh, shamelessly, I play in a band. We're called The Barons. Uh, It's a very sort of folk rock, alt country uh, but the, uh, our lead singer and songwriter writes fantastic songs. So, uh, if you're into that sort of, you know, like, uh, lap steel influenced uh, country-ish rock, uh, uh, we're a good band and I stand by the music that we make. So check them out. LeBaron's, uh, anywhere online it's LeBaronsband.com, you know, Facebook slash LeBaron's band, Instagram, etc. but LeBaron's like the car. And otherwise I, uh, created a face mask called the Sippo mask. It uh, is a mask that lets you uh, use a straw without taking off or touching the mask. Uh, I know that COVID is sort of winding down, but if you ever need to travel uh, or if you need to commute and you don't quite want to uh, let go of your masks quite yet, uh, the Sippo mask is something that can really make your commute or your travel much more comfortable. It allows you to have a drink without uh, removing your mask or, or having to take it off. It uses a self-sealing uh, valve that ex- only opens to accept the straw and when the straw is removed it seals up again so it works just like any regular face mask except it does this one thing where it accepts a straw or and seals up when it's not there so CIPO, sippo s-i-p-p-o uh, look it up and it might suit you might do really well for you
0: yeah, I will uh, put a little picture of that up on the screen as well. I did. I watched the the video and <laughs> was like, that is that is a genius idea, and I'm glad somebody thought of it.
1: <laughs> I appreciate it. It's very kind. Thank you.
0: Um, yeah, and so for me, I'll try to keep this really short. Uh, you may already know, uh, this to the audience, you may already know I, I do wear a lot of hats. I do a lot of different things. Um, you can find this show online, hatcollecting.com, hat collecting on social media. My website is artemiscreates.com, which is where you can go to find out about all the things that I either have done or am currently doing um and i will put up a, a brief little overlay on the screen as well because i i'm on so many different websites and platforms it's kind of ridiculous um and yeah at the very end of the video as well I, i'll just quickly say like i have music i have a book i have uh, designs and merchandise and things so there's just some things to check out besides the show so um that is pretty much that um the thing i'll take here take i'm just checking my notes make sure i don't miss anything um so what i like to do to ask for like audience uh, kind of participation engagement is um if you uh co- if you are watching on youtube or even if you're listening to the podcast if you go to youtube and just uh, leave a comment whether you want to say the most interesting thing that you learned throughout in this episode or if you have any questions or if you just want to leave a comment um just uh come by and, and say hello and and, uh, and leave a thought and that will be greatly appreciated. Um, and yeah, if you come to my YouTube channel, uh, you will find lots of other stuff cause I've been doing different things lately, but, um, yeah, so that, that is that. Um, but yeah, so this, uh, this brings us to the, um, the, the traditional hat sign off as I like to call it. And this is the part where we uh, both put on a hat uh, to kind of uh, close up the show here. Oh, I didn't bring a hat. Hold on. Oh dear.
1: <laughs> wait, wait. I got one. I
0: got one. I almost forgot myself. So
1: <laughs> okay. Um,
0: Should... so do you want to do you want to do them at the same time or do you want to do them? Uh, you just go ahead and do yours or how do you want to?
1: Do you mind if I actually get a f- more fun hat? Like, do you mind like two seconds? I can't. I'm going to get a better hat or than
0: this. Yeah, I I will have to take my headphones off to put this one on, but. Uh, yeah, I'll just go ahead and start doing that. Okay. Oh, geez,
1: Sorry, I punched the microphone.
0: It's a sparkly purple baseball hat kind of thing.
1: All right. Well, let's see. I'll do mine.
0: <laughs> okay, this was not planned. This just worked out really nicely.
1: <laughs> it's also a sparkly hat.
0: <laughs> yeah. I felt like going sparkly here to to kind of celebrate the uh, the return of hat collecting uh and now I'm glad I did because we had this lovely little uh, coincidence I'm a big like, fan
1: I'm a big fan of things that sparkle, so
0: <laughs> I, I always have this debate whether, like, sometimes, like, should I should I have it be a surprise? Like, we surprise each other with a hat, or should I actually try to coordinate it so we can have stuff like this? Um, and I've never settled on a definitive thing, so it just kind of ends up being whatever it does to that each episode.
1: Oh, <laughs> uh, I wish I had, uh, I didn't. Maybe I missed the note in the show notes, but uh, I actually have an LED hat that I can put like custom messages and shapes on
0: uh led um i'm gonna see how this (laughs) oh hey (laughs) i recently got this for my twitch streams it doesn't look the same with the lights on but i was curious how it would look uh on on this show so i think it looks great with the lights (laughs) up uh
1: you should uh like i would suggest you keep them up the next time you're recording uh but uh, i'm a yeah that that looks sharp i like
0: that it looks it looks really cool with the with the main lights out it's got this very kind of like lavender ambience, it's great.
1: Yeah, I'm a big fan of anything that lights up.
0: <laughs> yeah, and this uh, I'm trying to like move my head around so you can actually see the the sparkliness of this. Um, yeah. yeah, I I <laughs> I'm always so happy when this sort of thing like because this show is like I don't want the show to be too serious, but I I. I didn't want it to be that we're wearing hats the entire time because I thought that would become kind of gimmicky so doing it just for like a minute at the end feels like a a fitting way to kind of wrap things up and uh, yeah so uh, now we uh, I guess I'll have to do the actual outro now which I which I often uh, stumble through again it's been like a couple of months I'm a little bit rusty still but um thank you so much for watching and listening to another episode of hat collecting i hope that you did learn something and i hope that you will uh, like and subscribe if if you're able and um yeah so uh, until next time stay curious and keep collecting those hats